Thank, thank you, Pete. If you've got a Bible or a phone or iPad, however, however you look at stuff, the Word, can you just um, open it and turn to Jeremiah? Two scriptures I wanted you to just have a quick look at. Jeremiah 29, verses 11 to 13, which I'll, I'll read, but if you can just hold that and keep it while I'm chatting, it'd be great. So Jeremiah 29, uh, starting at verse 11, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. Keep hold of that one and then flick over to Romans, Romans chapter 5, verses 1 to 5. I want to read that out to you. Chapter 5, starting at verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into, which grace, uh, into this grace in which we now stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also rejoice in our sufferings, because we know that sufferings produce perseverance. Perseverance, character, and character produces hope. And a hope that does not disappoint us, because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit, whom he has given to us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for those scriptures. Thank you that you love us. Thank you that you want to pour hope into our hearts. And thank you, Lord, that you have a plan for us, to prosper us and not to harm us. Amen. If you look at those two scriptures, depending on which sort of version of the Bible you've got, you'll see that um, there's a tiny little word that appears sometimes, well, definitely twice, sometimes three, four, five, even six times. Sometimes it's a tiny word, and it's called hope. Hope is in both of them. And also in Jeremiah, you'll see that God says he's got a plan for you, personal profile plan for you. But what I'd like to just discuss and think about for a few moments is what about if you don't know that plan? What about if you haven't got hope in your heart? What about if it's been knocked out of you or kicked out of you as you were growing up or even as an adult? My life was um, a nightmare, not as bad as some people, but absolutely no plan and absolutely no hope. It says in the Bible somewhere, I can't remember, that hope deferred makes the heart sick. And that's what I was growing up as a kid, sick, really, from the inside, through lack of, of hope, investment, whatever it might be in me as a kid. And my life is not as difficult as I, I, can, I can definitely guess than some people in this room and for those that we know. I came from a dysfunctional family, as, as Pete mentioned. Both my parents were alcoholics. They were both atheists, just did not believe in God at all. My father, unashamedly my hero, big and unpredictable. My mother, very small and volcanic. And when those two were together, goodness me, it was a, an interesting time. And I grew up in the middle of them, obviously. No God and that sort of um, environment. We lived in Manchester, or just outside Manchester, a place called Salford. And I remember as a kid, we moved a lot. And we lived on some pretty sort of dodgy, rough estates when I look back now. So growing up for me as a kid wasn't a brilliant time. But like I said, not as bad as some people. 
And I guess having two alcoholic parents or, or functioning alcoholic parents, so I didn't know what I was going to get on a day-to-day -day basis, makes you a little bit sort of nervous. And, and I think it knocks most things out of you. And it certainly knocked hope out of me. And as I said, my parents, a plan, absolutely no chance. It was made up the night before. At 16, two things happened to me. I got in, um, in between my mother and father who were having an argument. I was, um, I guess I'd lost my temper, patience, and I was sort of bad-mouthing my mother. And, and my father gave me a clout. He just, and, and it progressed from there, and he threw me out. And, and it was a nightmare, actually. But I, I, I left home. As he threw me out, I thought, well, I'll just sort it out on my own in my arrogance and my youth. At the same time that happened, I was expelled from school. I went to a Manchester comprehensive, and it was awful. And if anyone in here has been bullied, you, you'll know what that's like. I was bullied permanently at that school. And every time the bell would go, which I can hear in my head now, I would dash down the corridors to try, to try and get out. Because there was always something was going to happen, and I'd, involved, I'd be involved in the middle of it. I was homeless for a while. Um, I lived on the streets not long, but enough to know what homelessness is. I moved into a squat in a place called Stockport with a few um, people that sort of gathered me up off the streets and I, and I moved in with them. And they looked after me a little bit, but they were dysfunctional. And they sort of taught me things about crime. Petty theft at first, breaking into houses, and then it was breaking into shops, and it moved on to warehouses, and it was stealing cars and bikes and stuff like that. And, and I was absolutely pathetic at it. I constantly got caught by the police. And that led to a relationship with the police, with the magistrates, with the courts. I was bound over to keep the peace. Uh, I couldn't pay the fines because I was unemployed, couldn't keep a job. And eventually all that stuff ended up with a prison sentence. And I went to a prison in between Manchester and Liverpool called Risley, Borstal Detention Centre at the time, and, and it was awful. In fact, this nickname uh, was Grizzly Risley. That's what you used to call it. And I thought I was pretty tough when I went in there, but I soon found out I wasn't. When I came out of there, um, my parents really hadn't visited me. Um, I wanted to go home. I just wanted to get back uh, home. And uh, I went home, and they'd divorced and separated, and, and um, they just weren't there, really. So I moved into a bedsit. I tried to get a, a job, a driving job, which I did, and I worked in a couple of bars at night just trying to keep my head down and, and stay out of trouble. And it's there I saw, uh, while I was driving this truck around Manchester, I saw a poster for the army. Um, and it was brilliant marketing when I come to think of it. It was two soldiers in camouflage uniform. It was a backdrop of mountains with blue sky and snow on the top. And, and they were skiing and smiling. And it said underneath, do you want a life of adventure? Then join the British Army. Long story short, that was enough for me. That's what I was, that's what I was looking for. I went in and I, and I signed up. And I was posted after 26 weeks basic training, which I excelled at and I, and I loved it. Because the army sort of invested in me. Uh, first person, first thing that had ever invested in me, Paul Cowley, told me I could do sport and I had some leadership skills. And, and they, just, they just sort of invested in me. And, and, and I blossomed in it. At 21, I got posted to, to Germany, a place called Hona. Uh, married then. Uh, a year later, we had a, a son, me and Lynn Clinton. At 23, I couldn't handle the responsibility of trying to be a father and look after my boy and also trying to be a decent husband and look after my wife. I couldn't do it. So I, I sent them both packing and ended up getting divorced. 
Uh, I was on my own for a while, quite like that. Then I didn't like it, so I got married again. That lasted a couple of years. Um, 25, I got married. 27, another divorce. Me. I couldn't handle that responsibility of trying to look after somebody else on one of these little things called children. I just, I just could not do it. And that was my life, really, without going into too much detail. It was full of um, drink. It was full of debt. It was full of divorce. And, and when I look back, it was speckled all the way through with despair. This hope deferred makes the heart sick. The only stable thing I had uh, in my life was my army career. And like I said, I loved it. I volunteered for everything, for three tours in Northern Ireland. I volunteered to, to go to the Falklands. I was in four different regiments. And my last regiment was Army Physical Training Corps. And I was attached to the 3rd Battalion Royal Green Jackets. I loved it. And again, they all invested in me all the way along. So I did really well. I left the army and worked in the fitness industry. I became a personal trainer. And then I ran a couple of health clubs in um, London. Fantastic jobs. Good money, lots of toys to play with and all that sort of stuff. But in my heart, still not satisfied. Then um, my army physical training instructor, Eric Martin, who was here this morning, who was a nightmare to me. I transferred to the army physical training corps. It took a year. There was about 100 people uh, want to transfer, and about 20 of us got through. It was uh, it's a really hard course in the Army. And he was, my, um, he was my training instructor, staff sergeant, and then he became a sergeant major. And uh, I don't know if you know him and you think he's really nice. He is now, but he was a nightmare. I mean, I can only describe him as a psychopath. <laughs> and during the training, I, I mentioned this morning, all the way through that, you have to qualify every single sport you can think of, not be a master of it, but you have to know how to do every single sport. So you're always tested all the way through. And I would go to him, and I'd be ready for my test, whatever it might be, or something, and I'd say, staff, ready for my test? He'd go, go on. And I'd do it brilliantly, and he'd go, fail, just to make me do it again. I mean, he, psychotic, that's all I can say. And very violent as well, and a heavy, heavy drinking man. I mean, don't let him deceive you, I tell you. Anyway, he sent, um, he was still in the army, I left, long story short, he sent a postcard um, to me. How he got my address, I have no idea. Sent me a postcard, it was really weird when I saw it. It had two sheep on the front and a shepherd, and when I turned it over, it said, Jesus loves you, marry that woman you're living with, which was Amanda, my girlfriend at the time. Uh, I'm praying for you, I've become a Christian, come and see me. Eric Martin. I thought, on you, I'm not at all. <laughs> Don't want to see him at all. Anyway, I went to see him. And we spent three days together in the science mess. I thought, I'm not scared of him. I'm out of the army now. He can't do anything to me. And we sat, and as he would say, we had Guinness and Bible. And we talked. And uh, he was the first person, I think in around 38 years, who told me about God. My parents never told me about God. When I was at school, I never had any religious education. In prison, I never met a chaplain. All those years, 16 and a half years in the army, I never met a padre. Nobody told me about God. Nobody told me there was a plan. Nobody told me that God would pour hope into my heart. He was the man. And literally, him and God saved my life. And I thank him for that, and I did it this morning, because he was the only one who had the nerve to sit me down, look me in the eye, and say, Paul, you can be a different man if you just listen to God. And that's why I tell you that it's so important, as Misty said, that whatever you do and you talk to someone, you've got to tell them about God. You have no idea what that, that little stupid sentence will say. Whatever it might be that you mention, 
the food, the walk, the kick in the leaves, whatever it might be. You have no idea what God will do with that word and grab it and change someone's life. Tell people about your story. Your story is so powerful. And if you're thinking in your head, no, mine isn't, that's a lie. It's powerful. Use it. They were saved by the blood of the Lamb and the power of the testimony. First man, 38 years to talk to me. Shortly after that conversation, when I was all sort of mixed up and, and excited and scared, I ended up going to HTB with Amanda and, and I got involved in an Alpha course. And it was there on the Holy Spirit day, really, that things started to drop into place for me. All this new, I knew nothing about any of this. And it all started to drop in and I realized that God loved me unconditionally. And I've said before, it's there where I really met with him face to face. And, and it was a shock, probably for both of us, because I didn't know he could love someone like me. I didn't know he cared with someone about me, about my past. And since that weekend, really, my life started to change. I married my girlfriend, uh, Amanda. We've been together for 30 years now, 22 years married. She is an amazing woman. I'm punching well above my weight, that's for sure. I have my son back in my life, Clinton, who I left when he was three, or I dumped him. At 16, when I became a Christian, just happened to come back into my life. He's 37 now, and we have a, a very close relationship as, as father and son. Unbelievable. I've got a daughter, or we've got a daughter, Phoebe, who's um, going on 18. She is gorgeous, beautiful, knows none of this stuff, actually, you know, not involved in it all. She knows my history, and she teaches me lots of things, especially about spending money. And I'm doing what I think God has called me to do, is working with the poor, is, is working with those in prison, the marginalized, the addicts, the ones coming out of prison, the ones that Jesus, if you look in the Bible, seem to hang around. You know, we say that God isn't biased, but I really believe he's got a bias for those types of characters and the poor. And in 2002, after some training, I was ordained into the Church of England as a priest. Goodness me, that's still a miracle. I mean, how does all that change happen? It's when I started to listen. It's when I started to have faith in people that God put around me who were saying, Paul, you can be different. It doesn't matter about your past. God has a plan for you. God has a purpose for you. And he can fill your heart with hope. And it's a hope that no one's going to steal from you because it does not disappoint because it's given by the Holy Spirit. That doesn't mean my life's been a doddle since I met with him. It certainly hasn't. And I know that your lives have not been easy in, in some ways. And some has and some hasn't. It just means that your life is filled with hope. And it's a hope given from God. And I wanted to introduce you to some men and women of old who uh, also encountered God in, in different ways and completely changed their lives. Um, and they brought about hope and justice for thousands upon thousands of people. And they're still doing it to this day, especially for the poor people. They built schools, hospitals, theatres, art galleries. Um, their money, their passion, their commitment, and their faith changed this country. In fact, changed London, especially as the capital. And they were determined to go on and change the structures by whatever means they had and however they could determine. Some of them had a passion to become rich and successful, and there's nothing wrong with that. It's what you do with that success and wealth that's important. But they had a passion and a vision. And I know you are a bunch of people who have passion and vision, because Pete's told me, and I've heard about you. So they started to speak it out. And less than 200 years ago, these people I'm going to show you were walking our streets. And we stand 
on the shoulders of these. And I've called them heroes, actually. And I want to explain really briefly uh, some of the things that they, they did. They were all kind of around at the same time. If you look at the dates, some were dying, some were being born, but they were all kind of around at the same time. So the first one, Shaftesbury, if he comes up. A lot of them have got beards for some reason. Um, he was a man of faith. He was a Christian, very powerful man of faith. He became an MP, he became a lord, and he became a leader um, for the movement of the Factory Reform Act. Sounds really boring, but let me tell you what he did. His chief concern was for children. He loved children. And in the time when he was around, the working conditions for men and women and children or the working class was horrendous, especially for kids and women. They were working up to and over 18 hours a day, no governance on any hours, and they were beaten and abused and all sorts of things, sent down um, coal mines, working in mills, they were sent up chimneys. It was horrendous. And he looked at that and said, you know what, it's not right. It needs to change. And he used his position to change that and bring about a bill. And the bill he brought about around was the 10-hour working law, 10-hour act, it's called. And it was reducing that 18 down to a reasonable 10 hours, which still seems a lot to me. He stopped children being forced up chimneys, where they would die and suffocate and burn to death. That's what we used to do with kids. He went, no, it has to stop. We change it. And he, in his position, made that. He also brought in the Asylum and Lunacy Act. Mental health issues in the days when he was around were horrendous. What they used to do is take the crazy people or those with mental health issues and put them in a house outside of London in the fields and the woods and there was no governance at all. And he went in and visited one of these houses from Parliament and he saw men and women and children shackled to the wall, living in their own filth being beaten and abused with no governance, no, no, nothing at all. He went, you know what, that has to change. And he brought about in, in Parliament the Asylum and Lunacy Act. And that's why we have a mental health bill now, because of him. It's changed, but because of him. He visited these asylums and just said, you know, it needs to change. He was one of the first, as I said, to introduce a legal system where they were governed and there was financial money and budgeted and people put in there. And changed it, because he saw it and he went in. The next one, uh, William Wilberforce, has been a massive inspiration in, in my life. A man of faith, uh, he became an MP, and as you know, lots of people know what he did. He headed up the campaign to abolish uh, slavery in, in the UK. And, uh, and that was hard work for him, he suffered. He toiled for 46 years, every single day, to try and get a bill passed. Through, through the shipping merchants, and they laughed him out of Parliament. Twelve times he presented a bill, twelve times he was laughed out and ridiculed all the way through it. Wilberforce was convinced of the importance of faith and morality and education in, in our society, in, in this country. He founded the Society for Reformation of Manners, Social Change. He founded the Society of uh, suppression of vice, that's alcohol and addiction and all that stuff that we think we do now. He started it all then. Uh, he founded the Church Mission Society, and he also founded the Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals, two of his passions. He changed the moral outlook of, of Britain. 46 years, 12 defeats, and three days before he died, in his bed, someone came to him and said, Sir, your bill has just been passed. 
for the abolition of slavery in the UK. And that had such an effect that even Abraham Lincoln, across the pond, wrote to him to encourage him, and that set Lincoln off, if you see the film. And that started the 13th Amendment, and that abolished slavery throughout the land. That was one man. Five foot three, he was. Tiny little character, but passionate about changing. And he influenced me to start the work that we're doing at um, the Holy Trinity Brompton, the William Wilberforce Trust, to pull all that stuff together, because I love his passion and his determination. The next one, uh, William Booth. He looks a bit fed up here, but uh, <laughs> goodness, if you did what he did, I'd be looking like that as well. A great man of faith and his wife, Catherine, amazing couple together. You know, founder of the Salvation Army, employed or he opened employment centers all over the place before anyone thought of employment centers. Uh, he was passionate to stop the gin trade of Whitechapel in central London that was killing so many of the poor, especially the women and children. These women were forced into prostitution. And then they were drinking, and the drink at the time was gin. It was called the opium of, of the time. And they were pouring this gin down their neck just to get through all the stuff they had to do. And then they were breastfeeding their children, and the children were becoming addicted. And he said, it's just outrageous, it needs to stop. And he went round Whitechapel and started to stop that opium of the modern times, the gin trade. He started the Prison Gate Brigade, which is where he had a horse-drawn carriage. And he would go outside the jails and he would meet these men and women and children when they were thrown into the street, naked and starving to death, some of them. And he'd put them on a horse-drawn carriage and he'd do his three S's, soup, soap and salvation. I love it. He would feed them, he would clothe them and then he'd pray for them. And he said, what's the point of praying for somebody whose belly's rumbling? Feed them first. Why can you pray or how do you pray for someone who's semi-naked in the elements? Clothe them first. Then they'll start to listen to your God. Then they'll understand the love of God because you've showed it to them. And it was him, again, who I stole the idea of caring for ex-offenders where we meet the men and women at the gate and we try and help them and bring them into churches like this. He was an amazing character. Opened uh, homeless shelters all over the, the UK. Goodness knows how he did all that stuff. But he developed an army of men and women who were passionate. And most of the army were the ones that were saved out of the dregs that I've just described. He put a uniform on them. He gave them a vision and a passion. He said, go out and bring some more in like you. And now, they still, still now, the, the Salvation Army is one of the biggest distributors of humanitarian aid in the world. Two people. If you read his story, he was downloaded a vision from God in his garden while he was trying to take a break. And he prayed, and it started to come to fruition. The next one, Elizabeth Fry, amazing woman. Uh, a woman of faith, she was a Quaker in her early 20s. She visited one of London's most and first notorious prisons. It was called Newgate Prison. It was horrendous. And she was quite wealthy, and she took sort of a, I don't know, like a wives club in there of, of, of uh, wives of wealthy men. Her husband was a banker, and they went in to visit it, and she saw the appalling conditions in there. She saw men, women, and children all in the same room. Living in, again, in their own filth, jailed. Living in straw with rats running everywhere, if you read a book about her. Uh, it was horrendous. And then she actually heard the stories of the jailers who were abusing physically and sexually all the people in there. And if you read her biography, one of them says she came out of the steps and almost passed out and almost fainted through what was going through her head. And she said, 
We have to do something about this. And she became a pain in people's sort of backsides about, about pioneering this. But you know what? She changed stuff. She was, the, um, she was the founder of the first female prison reform association in London. She passed a bill, or she got a bill passed, that separated male and female in juvenile prisons. That's why we have the three separate ones now. We never had it before her. She said they have to be separated. She established the first female prison. She went on to establish night shelters in London and, and help people sleeping rough. She, she founded a school that um, encouraged women who wanted to become nurses to help the poor. And one of the people that went through a training was Florence Nightingale, who was so inspired by this woman, she disappeared off to the Crimean during the war. And we know what Florence Nightingale did. And finally, because there's so many I could bang on about, because they are just really inspirational people for me, is W.T. Stead. Not many people know about Stead, but he's an extraordinary man. He was a, a man of faith, a Christian, and he was a, a journalist, an amazing writer. And he saw on the streets of London the prostitution and the abuse of, of young girls that were being brought into this trade and just physically trafficked and abused from the age of five up to 13, he heard these stories, and he couldn't get them out of his head, and he prayed. And God said, do something about it. So he went on a little sort of undercover mission. And what he did, he went into these darkest areas in London, and he met these people that we don't want to meet, really, these sinister, evil men at the time. And he said he was interested in, in a young girl. And he met one man, then he got shoved onto another man, then he went into a pub, then he went somewhere else, and he ended up going up, paying his five pounds, going up a flight of stairs, uh, opening a door, and there was a young girl in one of his books he describes couldn't be more than five, six, seven years of age. He closed the door and he came down the stairs and he went back to his desk and he penned every single thing that he'd been through. He mentioned names, those in high in society. He mentioned everything. And the paper that he worked for, the Pall Mall Gazette, they printed everything. And they went ballistic. If you look on Google and you follow this guy, there's black and white pictures of crowds of people outside the Pall Mall Gazette, outside the courts and the police stations, because they didn't really know it was going on until he publicized it. Then a couple of weeks later, he was arrested, because obviously he upset some seriously influential people. And he was arrested. And there's a great picture of him on the steps of one of the court, shackled feet and hands with two policemen next to him. And he's got his hands in the air like this. And he's got this massive smile on his face. He was so excited that he got arrested and that it got published. And a few weeks after that, maybe a month or so, there was such an uproar about what he'd done and what people knew about that there was an act changed in Parliament. And it was the act of consent. It was the 16 years of age. We never had that before. He changed it. He brought in that um, the law of consent was raised to 16. We never had a law of consent. You could do whatever you wanted. Nobody cared. He went, do you know what? It needs to change. A vision, a passion, a plan, and a purpose. What happened to W.T. Stead? Well... He was last saw leading women and children to the safety boats on the Titanic. Amazing man. We don't know about him. We didn't know about the age of consent. It was him as a Christian man who God said, you do something about it instead. 
So where are all those sort of um, those men and women of today? Where are all those heroes that I've just mentioned? These are the men and women that we stand on the shoulders of. These are the men and women that our society is based on. The things that we do now that we take for granted. Every single one of them was a fight. People died for them. People gave their lives for them. And if you look in history, not all, but most of them had a Christian faith. Most of them. I could mention more. Bernardo, all of them. Octavia Hill, Housing Association, all had a Christian faith. And at some point when you read about them, God downloaded a little message into their head and said, you know what? You go and do something about it. So where are those men and women? Well, I'm looking at them. It's you. It's you and me. It's us. We're the ones. We're the modern day uh, abolitionists. We're the modern day Elizabeth Fries. We're the modern day William Boobs. It's us. Is that exciting? Oh, come on. Is that exciting? It's you. If we don't do something, that little vision, that, that passion that God has put in your, in your head and you've tucked it away so far down because you feel that it's stupid and nobody's listening to you and everyone's saying, oh, who do you think you are? That will never work. That will never happen. It's tried before. Well, to heck with them. Unlock it. Get it out. Bring it up. And like Pete said, put it in your hand and say, God, I want to do that. You have no idea what God has got in store for those who love him. And that's you. We are the generation that are reaping all these things that these men and women have done before. Because of these men and women of old, we now have a welfare state where millions of people are supported. We have children in school to the age of 16. We have an NHS system. In my opinion, the best in the world. For those of you who have traveled, and you've needed a doctor, you appreciate the NHS when you come back here. You know, we have everybody um, has a right to good education. 50% of our kids go into university. We have a, uh, an age of consent raised to 16. We have uh, a decent housing act. It could be better, but we have a housing act. We have a prison act. We have a freedom of speech act. We have freedom to practice our faith act. Where do you think they all came from? They all came from men and women who died to get that through. And most of them, if not all of them, were men and women of faith. So where are the heroes today? Just turn to your left and right and look at each other. You are the heroes. And if you are passionate about something, or you want to passionate about something, then just ask God. And then we'll start to change. And these pictures may be of you in a, in a few years, or a few hundred years or something. Because we can bring down crime rates. We can do that as the church and as individuals. We put an end to homelessness. We can start to empty prisons. We can, we can help with public safety. Goodness, it's endless. We can stop this horrendous sex trafficking act of, of women and children in this country and around the world. We can get people back into employment. We can give them hope back, those that feel um, despair. Give people back self-respect and dignity. We can change laws that need changing. And if there isn't a law, then find one and change it and make it. We can do that. We really can through God. But it's going to need a lot of courage, a lot of sacrifice, as Pete talked about at the beginning. It's going to need time. It's going to need patience. It's going to need connection. And most of all, it's going to need prayer. If we want to change things, and read these stories that some people have mentioned. They were men and women of prayer, devoutly into prayer all the time, asking for God to help them. 
You know, we can fight modern-day slavery. We can work on these inner cities. We can reduce crime. And I've said all that stuff. We can care for the mentally ill, not just bin them somewhere else. We can start to do that. The church can raise up and do that. Why do I know that? Because I've read the book, and we win. At the end, we win. God has a purpose, and we win it. I wanted to end with a story, because I don't want you to think that you had to live 150 years ago to be able to be one of these giants and so people can stand on their shoulders. You don't have to be. I want to introduce you to, to Eddie, who's a friend of mine. Um, Eddie uh, was from, um, is from Glasgow. That little white thing he's holding is a, a birthday card in a, in, a, um, in a homeless shelter he was in. Uh, and that coat he's got on is actually a light blue color, so you can see the state of him. Eddie was born in Glasgow. He was abused by his parents. Then he was abused by his step-parents. Then he was put into care as a, as a young child. He was abused through the care system, mentally, physically, sexually. Then he escaped from there, was on the streets and homeless. Then he got in trouble with the police. And I think 10, 12 times in Glasgow, he, he was in prison, in and out. He is addicted or was addicted to every single thing you can think of. Uh, alcohol abuse, uh, drug abuse. Most of his main arteries had collapsed through abusing them with needles and different things. And he got fed up of that lifestyle and wanted to move to London because London's paved with gold and he could sort it all out. He came to London and it got even worse. More drugs, more alcohol, uh, more abuse on the streets, trying to live rough. Um, and ended up in hospital, actually, with, with closure of these main veins. He came out of hospital and then happened to come into uh, the night shelter that we started through the William Wilberforce Trust during the winter months. He wandered in there, and he was a real pain in the butt. It was really difficult. And the thing about um, Eddie was, he just had this horrendous smell. And if anyone's worked with homeless people, I don't have to describe that to you. And, uh, and just a very difficult person. But people like you, volunteers, loved him and cared for him. Nobody told him that he stank. Well, I might have a couple of times, but nobody else did. And then from the night shelters, he came into the drop-in that we started in the Wilberforce Trust. Just open the church all day, and they'd come in, and they'd sit, charge their phones, have a coffee, some toast, read a paper, whatever they wanted to do. And we had volunteers that chatted to him, and he came in there. And one of the bright young things, the volunteers, suggested to Eddie that he should do Alpha. And Eddie came over to Holy Trinity Brompton and did the Alpha course. And I used to stand at the back. I loved it. A bit naughty. And I'd see him go into one of these groups. HTB can be a little bit posh at times. <laughs> and he moved into one of these groups. And they were very polite. And they'd, they'd sit him down and welcome him, get him a cup of tea. Then they'd just slightly move away from him. <laughs> just, just a little bit move away from him. But again, they loved him. Nobody told him that he stank at all. Nobody told him. They just loved him. And Eddie went on the weekend to Chichester. And it was there that I really encountered him again. I met him through the night shelters and, and the drop-in. But um, on the Holy Spirit talk, Jamie Haith was speaking. And he just said, you know what? Enough talk. Why don't you just turn to the person on your left or right and ask them if they want some prayer? And I was at the back by the window, staying out of it. And so was Eddie. And I turned and looked. And he looked at me. And uh, I thought, you know what, I do not want to pray for this man, I'll be honest with you. One, I couldn't bear the stench next to him. And two, I didn't want to lay hands on that coat, that's for sure, that he was wearing. And I walked out, and God did a real number on me and said, get your butt back in there and pray for that man now. And I came back in and I said, Eddie, you probably don't want anything, but do you want any prayer or anything? He said, yeah, I do. 
And we prayed, and I fumbled through this prayer, and he gave his life to, to Christ. And then he fell into my chest, uh, which was good and bad. <laughs> he fell into my chest, and I just, I just held on to him, and he sobbed. And again, long story short, he, he was at the end of his tether. That was it. He, he was suicidal. He said, if this stuff with God doesn't work, I'm out of here. And I left him then, and uh, I didn't see him for a while. And then he started coming to Queensgate, um, St. Augustine's, a church that I look after as a pastor. And he started to walk in there. And um, he started to change. And I want to show you a picture of Eddie just to finish with. Um, now, this is Eddie. Bit of a transformation, I think. And that, was, that transformation is obviously God, but it's you. You people, you volunteers, you lovely Christians changed him. And he started to change from the inside. No one told him that he smelt. Nobody told him to get his hair cut. Nobody told him to have a shave. Nobody told him to get some decent clothes. You just loved him. And he started to change. And Eddie got involved in the church. And he runs the cafe where, where the church the service is on a Sunday. And then he went to St. Melitus where, where we do some Bible study and got a diploma in Bible studies. Then he's just done his second part of his MVQ for counseling. Now he's working with people who are addicted, homeless, and on the street. Then he's been working for pret a who have a, 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 a charity that works with kids uh, expelled from school, who can't get into school, who are difficult. And they love him. They think he's brilliant. Eddie is a changed man. And actually, he smells really nice now. Now, Eddie texts me every day. I love this man to bits. He texts me every day, sending me scriptures to encourage me. He sent me one this morning because I was coming here. Tell them about the love of God, he said, Paul. So it's those sort of things that we do. And I want to end with one quote. The series that you're in is Justice in Christ. Just listen to this. While women weep as they do, I'll fight. While children go hungry as they do, I'll fight. While men and women go to prison in and out, in and out as they do, I'll fight. While there is a drunkard left destitute on the streets, I'll fight. While there is a poor, where there is one poor lost girl upon the streets, while there remains one dark soul without the light of God in their life, I will fight, I will fight, I will fight to the very end. William Booth. And that's the inheritance that we have. That's what we can do. We can change people's lives by witnessing to them or getting that vision that you've locked away, opening your hand and saying, God, do what you will with it. Amen? Amen. Amen. Peace.